Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him two lips like roses and clover. And tell him that his lonesome nights are over. Sandman, I'm so alone. Don't have nobody to call my own. Please turn on your magic beam. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Good evening and welcome to Knox Mente. Tonight's guest is Robert Phoenix. Robert has been studying the esoteric arts for over 30 years. As a student of the late Karen Luntegaard, he became a professional psychic and was part of one of the first psychic phone networks in the world. After conquering the offline world, he moved his focus to the web. In 2008, he started RobertPhoenix.com, where he decodes and unpacks contemporary culture through the use of his intuitive gifts, tarot, and astrology. Aside from being a world-renowned astrologer, Robert also hosts a daily show called 15 Minutes of Flame and the Friday Farcast. In his show, Robert provides a special blend of news, astrology, commentary, and esoteric correlations that reveal to you the true nature of your reality. Robert is a writer, teacher, radio host, astrologer, social reverse engineer, and was once even called the Anthony Bourdain of astrology. Robert, welcome to Knox Mente. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jerry. I'm not sure how I feel about the Anthony Bourdain comparison these days. It was on your website. <laughs> I know, it's true. I know, it's true. Um, but uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yes, welcome, Robert. Thanks We're excited on. to have you on. Thanks, Nish. So let's let's just dive right in. Tell us about the world you grew up in, the landscape, so that we can get an idea of your set of symbols as we move into the dream language. So I um, grew up initially, originally I was, I was born in France and at a young age moved to the United States and um, grew up for the first four years of my life in New Jersey where I actually had quite a vivid dream life um, in many regards. I actually remember key dreams from when I was a child and not just dreams, but almost like uh, nocturnal prompts in some ways. Oh, wow. I, I remember one night I was, uh, you, you know, I think it was around three years old, and I climbed out of my crib or bed or whatever it was I was sleeping in. We lived in an apartment. It was very small. And I got up in the middle of the night, and I went into the living room, and I turned on the TV. This must have been probably around 11.30 or 12. And uh, I began to watch uh, The Tonight Show, and I believe at that time Jack Parr was the, the host of The Tonight Show. And I'll never forget, it was um, the guests on The Tonight Show were Michael Landon and Dan Blocker, who oh, wow. I would um, recognize as being cast members of the show Bonanza. Yes. And I always thought that this moment in time was kind of, significant for me in some ways because later in my life when I would move to California in my teen my teen years early teen and mid-teen years I was obsessed with late night television and specifically Johnny Carson and uh, Tom Snyder on the Tomorrow Show so I, I spent a lot of nocturnal hours spending time in that world and it, and it all started when I was 
about three years old. That was, that was a, an interesting kind of moment in time. And then I'll never forget another dream I had. It sounds quite mundane, but I remember I used to tell these really bad jokes all the time. And I was about, again, around three years old. And my father got <laughs> sick of them. And he decided he was going to teach me how to how the alphabet, how to spell dog and cat, and some basic arithmetic. So I struggled with the alphabet. And um, I remember one night I, I had a dream and I saw the alphabet clearly. It was just like on a chalkboard. Oh, wow. And then I saw dog, D-O-G. And then there was a chalk picture of a dog, cat, C-A-T, chalk picture of a cat. And then one plus one was two, two plus two was four. So I grabbed that. And from that point forward, you know, I, I just, I nailed the alphabet and, and I got to tell my stupid jokes again. I don't know, but. Uh, that's how, you know, sort of my early remembrances of kind of nocturnal promptings and, and sort of, you know, basic fundamental dreams. Um, and then I moved to California when I was about five years old, I think. And I grew up just south of the summer of love. So this was 1965, 66, 67. And we lived in a town called San Bruno, which was roughly about 10 miles away from San Francisco. And um, it, it was an interesting place to be in an interesting time because you could feel we in the air. I mean, it was, it was almost, um, almost like perfume. Oh, you know? nice. It was intoxicating, really. I mean, psychedelic art was everywhere. Paisley was everywhere. Peace signs were everywhere. How old were you at this point? I was between like uh, five and, and seven and eight. So these, and these are vivid memories. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, you get up on Saturday morning and you'd flip on Saturday morning TV and there'd be the monkeys and you'd have yeah. <laughs> Bob Raffleson and Jack Nicholson selling their version of the Beatles to America. And it was a really interesting time to sort of be alive, especially that close to San Francisco. And... I absolutely loved the music. The music was um, really intoxicating. And I remember uh, my parents, my father had, had gotten a, uh, received a record from one of our neighbors as a gift. And it was this group called the Neighborhood Children. And it was <laughs> some kind of, you know, third-rate psychedelic group, I think from San Francisco. And I used to play this record over and over again. And I would dance into kind of a, a frenzy with this record. Like I would take my shirt off in the living room of my parents' apartment. <laughs> Finding that ecstasis. <laughs> oh my God. It was incredible. You know, I could, I, you know, I, I found this kind of thing that got unlocked inside of me with this music. So I loved the music. It was great, but I didn't really dig hippies, which was an interesting kind of contrast. I remember we went to uh, hate Ashbury when I was, probably around seven years old. And I was really, you know, the spy thing was really big back then too. James. Oh Bond, yeah. Get smart and all that. Get smart man from uncle. I mean, everything was spy, 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 spy. So I had a spy kit. <laughs> and, um, so my grandparents were in town and my, my parents said, well, let's go to, let's go to San Francisco. So we decided to, drive to the Haight-Ashbury, so, and this is 1967, so the Summer of Love is a 24-7 theater. 
And I, re I remember like packing my spy kit so I could like deal with the hippies if I had to, you know, have my little spy gun. Little <laughs> you spy were prepared. <laughs> yeah, I was prepared. And then, then we drove into Haight-Ashbury and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was, you know, it was like this, uh, this carnival, this human carnival, you know, and people were dancing and hanging off of street signs and oh, wow. something. I'd never been to India before. I've never been to India since, but it felt like, it, you know, in my own way, it kind of felt like that. So I grew that's, you know, those were my formative years in, in uh, Northern California as a child. And um, I was kind of a, I was kind of a wild child. Um, you know, I was, I wound up being the kid that other parents didn't let their kids hang out with. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was that kid too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I got into trouble and um, it was a kind of an intense phase, you know, we were a young family and my parents had a lot of, um, they had a lot of stuff to work through, you know? So we're all working through our stuff together. And then we moved to San Jose and uh, that was a totally different world. It was, way more kind of ethnically mixed and diverse. And I was living in kind of a lily white wonderland yeah. uh, south of San Francisco. And in San Jose, I started to hang out with Mexican kids and black kids and Asian kids. And I got into my first fight with a black kid in San Jose. And um, it was interesting, you know, we fought it out and we got sent to the principal's office. And then we talked and we shook hands and we became best friends. So that was kind of I my- I love how that can work out. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think basically um, men are like dogs, to be honest with you. You know, if you ever have, if you ever see a dog in like a dog park and they kind of get on each other's case and they sort of like tumble for a little bit, you know, they rustle up for a little, and then they're done. Yeah, then they sort it and it's all good. Yeah, you never see dogs really go back and like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get that dog. <laughs> right. You know? That's it, move on. Now we've got their, we got their scent. We know where we stand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They don't, they don't hold grudges. They just move on. And so we need to be more like dogs, I think. Oh, we I agree. It'd be a better place. That, that was my life. And it moved around quite a bit for a couple of years and eventually, you know, rotated uh, back to San Jose where I, I spent most of my high school years. And so I had, I had a lot of, I had a lot of dream activity when I was, when I, when I was young and living in San Jose. Were you a banana uh, yeah. slug? What's that? Were you a banana slug? Was I a banana slug? No, I was, I was not a banana slug. Um, I'm not sure, you know, Probably more of a cricket, I'd say. Crickets were fascinating. <laughs> no, isn't that the, like the, the the high school team of Santa Cruz, the banana slugs? Or oh no, no, oh, that's yeah, those are the banana slugs. No, no, that was yeah. I, no, I in high school I was um, they're college pirates. Pirates, okay. That's a, a if pirate. I was college. No, my bad. Yeah, no, college. I was a gator. I was I was a gator. San Francisco, get a gator. Right. Yeah. So that it's great that you had um, San Francisco at that period of time in, in these early formative years. I mean, how amazing that is to build a foundation from. Oh, it was, it was really interesting. Like I, my father used to take me to this place called Playland, which no longer exists. 
and it was a uh, an amusement park at the edge of San Francisco, on the on the ocean, uh, near near us, uh, the Sutro Baths, the old Sutro Baths, mm-hmm. and Playland was like really seedy. Yeah, but by this point. Um, <laughs> It was hard, you know. I think that's yeah. a common thing for all playlands across the whole, entire state because ours was CD in Chicago too. It was creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it's it's almost like these disincarnate spirits begin to kind of occupy that space. Yes, that that is something to ruminate on. It's the ghost of old carnies. Yeah. Were you were you and religious at all? What's that? I'm sorry. Were you born into like a religion at all? No, you know, I, I wasn't. And um, I had some very interesting experiences with religion early on, which um, are not your textbook experiences. Like um, when I was, I think, probably around three or four, my parents, my mother, took me to church, Episcopalian church. And we walked, this is my first time, and we walked up to the church and the doors fly open and man, the organ is pumping and the stained glass window is right behind the organ and the lights flooding the stained glass window. And man, I freaked out. <laughs> I totally freaked out. And I threw such a uh, fit or a tantrum that they wouldn't allow me in the church. So I, they put me downstairs and did the Sunday school thing with Sunday school kids. And I remember just passing time and trying to play or whatever. Um, but that was kind of a theme for me that would get acted out sort of in the later years. In, when we lived in um, uh, San Bruno, um, we bought a house in San Jose in 1968. So I was still technically going to school um, about 10 miles away from San Francisco. And then um, we would drive after school to go to our house in San Jose which was about 35, 40 miles away. And some days we would take El Camino, which is a lot of stoplights because the freeway would be really crowded. And we would, we would come up on this Russian Orthodox church, which was white, you know, alabaster white and cobalt blue minarets and everything. And I would have a massive anxiety attack when we would approach this church. And I would climb under the back seat of the car um, because I was so freaked out, and I was having—I mean, it was like a serious panic attack. And you were—you were three, or what? no, no, I was—I was eight this time. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. So I was like seriously freaked out by this church, and I would pass it, and then they would say, "Yeah, we're past it," and I all of a sudden I. I would regain some semblance of control, but this church like would throw me into a very, very weird place. That's incredible. Really? Yeah. That you, you had such a visceral response to it. Yeah. You know, and I had like weird stuff with religion. Um, like when I was a kid, like I had like, you know, back in the day, you guys may remember this, but sometimes, And like I couldn't look at Jesus while I ate. It was really, really weird. <laughs> the guilt was it? Was it? What do you think? I don't was? know. You know, I I was I was like this really young, 
heretical person um, in a lot of ways, I thought. So, I don't, you know, I've got ideas about why mm -hmm. some of them, which interesting enough have been revealed to me in dream states. But um, I had a, I just, I did not vibe at all with that church. It freaked me out to the point where I would panic. That's interesting. Are, did you, what do you have? Um, are you religious or spiritual now? Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, I, I know life where I've had the minor intervention. Like, when I was um, 18 months old, I had spinal meningitis. And uh, it was, there. apparently, there are, like, two main strains of spinal meningitis. One, which is not as deadly, but if you recover, there's a good chance of brain damage. And then the other, which is... Uh, deadlier but if you recover the chances are you know you'll be intact so when I was 18 months old I was basically on death's doorstep wow and, and um, you know I was baptized and given my last rites simultaneously so you were emotionally in this state too thinking you were going to pass I didn't know I was only 18 months old oh oh man I thought you said 18 years 18 no, months 18 okay months no I had no idea really okay so I was I was baptized and given my last rites simultaneously. Wow, that's intriguing. And, yeah, and um, the, uh, the 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 minister or the pastor basically said, you know, you better pray. You know, this is based on what they were, you know, hearing from the doctor um, that it was not looking great. And then the next day, after you know a night of prayer, I was I was standing up inside my oxygen tent trying to get the uh, IV out of my ankle. So you know I'm convinced that something miraculous happened then, and I also had another experience when I was 21 where I guess you could call it kind of a conversion experience. That um, was very powerful and very profound for me. But I you know I didn't go to church though. I've never been a church person. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really, I don't vibe with church, mm -hmm. uh, but I've had some very profound, you know, quasi-religious and certainly spiritual experiences. And I would say, you know, I guess, I, you know, I'd be more spiritual than not uh, or okay. more religious. Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you. I, um, oh, so, and, and also in this kind of opening stuff, since you are a great astrologer, we always ask this sign. So if you could give us a little Robert overview of your, you know, your rising and moon, what right. house your sun is in. Yeah. So do you know much about astrology? I know a little bit. Okay. So I am a Scorpio rising, uh, 28 degrees. So I'm right at the end of Scorpio. Ooh. And that makes my first house mostly Sagittarius. And uh, I have Jupiter and Sag in my first house. Oh, I love that. And uh, my son is Virgo at 29 degrees. So you're at the end. I'm at the too. end. I'm at the, yeah, if I'd been born a half an hour later, I'd be, I'd be zero Libra. The Sag energy I've got to, I must confess, is my favorite for teachers in my, that have been in my personal life. Everyone I've loved and actually learned the most from have been Sag afflicted one way or another. Yeah, it seems to be part of the sign. Yeah, and, and, the higher um, learning. Yeah, so you know, I've got Jupiter and Sag in my first house, so I've got to, you know, I've got to get it out somehow. 
And um, then my moon is in Libra. I have a Libra moon. Nice. And it's conjunct Mercury. So I have a moon Mercury conjunction. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, and so this is a little little off, but I want to ask since I have you here, I have been um, following your 11th house series. So why do you, why did you, what is it about the 11th house and you naming that little series that? You mean over on Gaia? Yeah. Yes, well, I Jay get it w- on YouTube, on your channel. So, well, so Jay Widener asked me to come up with a name. And I thought, well, the 11th house is about groups. It's ruled by Aquarius. Um, it's also, for me, the 11th house has taken on the uh, energy of the internet, social yes. networks. Yep. So I just put it all together and it just made sense to the 11th house. Okay. Yeah, I figured that it was it was that clear cut, but I, I was just curious. Oh, yeah, that's I'm great! I've got four planets awesome. in the I don't want to veer too much off of the thing, but that I had since you're you're Robert Phoenix, I had to <laughs> I had to get a little bit of that in. Yeah, Have sure. you? Um, this is this is um, a question since this show basically deals with altered states of consciousness, dreaming, yeah. memories, past lives, through dreams or near deaths, out of body, all that. Have you ever done any psychedelics? Oh yeah, Absolutely. and so we well we love that. And could you, if you're comfortable, could you give us a little? Um, Walk us through some, maybe a couple of significant experiences that changed your uh, view of states of consciousness. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first really powerful state of consciousness change I experienced was at about nine years old. And I was um, at a, they had these uh, department stores called Mervyn's in California. I remember Mervyn's. And I was um, in the soft goods aisle. And I remember a woman dropping a pair of either underwear or T-shirts out of the soft goods aisle. And as soon as that began to fall off of the rack, I knew what was going to happen exactly over, over the course of like the next 10 seconds. And it was a really weird thing for me to experience. Like, and you were nine. Yeah, I was nine years old. Wow. So it was. It was. Um, you know, I didn't know how to. You know, ex- explain that to my parents. But it was. Um, it was unusual. You know, and um, so that was really like, sort of the, the the first unusual kind of phenomenon with, with like time and. Deja vu and things like that. So yes. would, you, would you call that remote viewing? Yeah. I mean, it was, and I've, and, and subsequently after that, I used to have them quite a bit. It was not uncommon for me to experience those. Uh, but I would say, you know, outside of spinning like crazy, like what most kids do. Yes. Uh, I used to love that. Yeah, totally. And I, the first time I, I really, I suppose altered my consciousness was about 12 years old where I drank about 18 beers in one day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was a hot summer day and we tapped my, my friend's father's keg. 
and uh, bad you, kids. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, that was a lot of fun. I remember that day being a lot of fun. Um, and then I, I, when I was, you know, in a freshman in high school, we used to have this thing called double session because our school was so crowded. And um, so we would have, as a freshman, we wouldn't go to school to about 12, 15. And then we would get out at around 545. And you just don't want to give freshmen in high school, you know, <laughs> five hours during the day unsupervised. That's not a good idea. So I used to get drunk with people in the neighborhood, not every day, but it would happen. And I'd wind up going to school just completely shit faced. And during that time, you know, when you're young and your liver is fresh and everything. Yeah. Getting drunk is like, you know, it's almost psychedelic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, that lasted for a while. And then the next year, I had to get up to school early. So the, uh, you know, the morning hijinks stopped. And I, I started, you know, I had a kind of a straight and narrow year that year. But it was in that summer after my sophomore year in high school that I discovered marijuana. And it was uh, back in the day when it was like Mexican ragweed, which was, mm -hmm. incredible, which was incredible. <laughs> it wasn't like heavy or anything. It was light and playful and funny. And you laughed and ate donuts. And I thought, man, this is great. I get I miss ditchweed, which is, I think, what we called it. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it, was, it wasn't like this, um, this, you know, kind of mind fuck drug. You know, it's just weird. It, no, it's, it's way different. Way different. Yeah, it was, you know, it was Cheech and Chomi. You know, I know. <laughs> so I did that, you know, and I thought, you know, wow, gee, hmm, what else is out there? And astrologically, this is beginning to correspond with Neptune transiting my first house, if you know anything about this. Problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. In Sagittarius, right? <laughs> Did you have so your second, open the doors? Did you have Saturn return yet? Oh no, that's much later. No, I'm, at this time I'm around 56. 15 years old. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, no, I meant I, now as of today. I meant yet since. Oh, today, no. I so my Saturn two more years, right? Back in December. Okay. When it goes into into Capricorn, and I was a big fan. Of the, I mean, to me, music was really psychic. Like I, music for me, even before I discovered any mind altering substances was really like my drug. Mm -hmm. You know, I would sit around and I know it sounds really corny, but I'd sit around in, in a darkened room and lights off and, you know, on my waterbed or whatever. And I'd listen to yes. Yeah. And yeah. I would just, I would just trip on yes, or I'd trip on Genesis. And Well, you had that Neptune energy coming in, right? Oh, it's, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so music was really a vehicle for me to go places yeah early, early genesis was so groundbreaking Ugh. and unique compared to even like yes or pink floyd at that time like i remember when selling england from by the pound came out that was a great album selling england by the pound and foxtrot man foxtrot yeah i used to listen to foxtrot start to finish it was, that was back in the days of eight track tapes so we just loop you know just keep playing and playing and playing and watcher of the skies for me it was like that was my song you know it was great I liked it. I, w I was a uh, cinema show was mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, after I started 
smoking cannabis. I'm like, well, what else is out there? <laughs> and so I, I figured out, you know, where to, where to get LSD. And I took my, my first trip and I was 15 years old and it freaked the living shit out of me. Like I, you know, I mean, I was seriously like spooked and I, oh, so was it bad? Oh, I had a total bad trip. Oh, interesting. Totally bad trip. And the reason why is I took it and I went to bed. And oh. so I laid in my bed, tripping my brains out, right? And um, I was like so freaked out in some ways that I was thinking of going into my parents' bedroom and telling them, look, I'm just taking LSD and I'm losing my shit, you know? So, but I didn't do that. I, I kind of soldiered through, right? And, but I thought to myself, I got to try this again. <laughs> mm -hmm. I got to try this again. I've got to try it under different circumstances. So I did. And it was much different. We, I took it with some friends and we went out and, you know, we kind of had this merry prankster kind of night and it was mind blowing. And I had never laughed so hard. And, yeah. Um, it, it was incredible. And so at that point I became, uh, I wouldn't say addicted, but I loved psychedelics. I was there a point when you'd use them to possibly um, explore gates of perception outside of, say, being social and the, the, the fun, joy, yes, part that is also part of it? Well, I would say uh, I, don't think you, I don't think you could get out of that component of it. Um, it happens along the way. Like, did I sit there and meditate and go deeply into the psychedelic realm? Um, I would say, by and large, the answer would be no. But I would certainly have epiphanies and I'd certainly have visions that yeah. I could not bring back with me. Yeah. Uh, um, but it was, for me, it was almost like, how do I say this? Um, it was almost like trying to see what I could do under the, under the kind of the wave of psychedelia. It was almost like it was a challenge in some ways, like driving a car, you mm -hmm. know, driving a car across town. Go to mm -hmm. a movie, but also you know. an exploration at the same time. Yeah. Of, of that true. realm, that whatever. Right. I had we, friends that could function like that, drive cars, but I was always... I would be pushing into like matter, like a wall, and I would start blending in. I was never able to function. Yeah, no, I was kind of like a psychedelic ranger. That was, yeah, you, you that, sound like it. That was my thing. And I remember one night we were driving across town to go see, um, what is it, uh, 200 Motels, the Frank Zappa movie. Is it 500 Motels or 200 Motels, Frank Zappa film? Anyway, we are driving across town to go see the Zappa film. And every headlight is like the birth of creation. Wow. Like universes <laughs> are, are just exploding off headlights. Yeah, lights are amazing. And, and it was, and it's like, how, how do I navigate through this? You know, how can I, you know, get into the phenomenon, but at the same time, you know, hold my shit together? That was right. really always the thing, you know. And so I did that quite a bit in high school. That was my. That was my uh, drug du jour. 
in a lot of ways. And uh, then I discovered mushrooms when I left high school, and those were just incredible. Yeah. Um, so warm, so organic. Yeah, way uh, different. Oh yeah, it was like you know, hang. You know, the mushrooms became friends. It was like mm-hmm. hanging with friends. Yeah, they totally. It does feel like. Um, yeah, there's a different. There's a consciousness there, actually. It yeah. feels that way. Yeah, totally, totally. And so my, you know, my psychedelic exploration on that level continued up through my uh, my early twenties, um, both with um, LSD and mushrooms and. I would say that a real major uh, turning point for me actually happened while I was um, tripping. And I I was, I think at that time I was 21. This goes back to the conversion experience that I I was talking about earlier. And I was at my, at that time, I was 20. I was 20. And my girlfriend was a year older than me. She was 21. She was working at PG. She'd graduated from college before me. So she was like established and setting up in the world and, you know, and I was still in school. And um, so she was, you know, kind of moving ahead very quickly. And um, one night I was, it was on a Friday night and I got really, really drunk uh, with some friends and at about uh, three in the morning, decided to get my car and go pay my girlfriend a visit, which was probably not a very good idea. Oh dear. And I wound up passing out at the wheel of my car. Um, and my car drifted. This is on the freeway right around near where Candlestick Park is. Or wow. And so it's about three in the morning. There's nobody on the freeway. Now there would be an interview, but not back yeah. then. So I passed out and my car drifts. And all of a sudden, I bounce off the center divider. And luckily, I, you know, I just lose my side mirror. And I kind of have this dent in my car, wakes me up, and I, you know, soldier on, and I get to her place. So I knock on her door, and she lets me in, and um, it's her big birthday weekend, and her sister was sleeping with her, and she had to get out of the bed, and, you know, so I basically disturbed everybody's shit. And I, I lay down, woke up the next day, and people were kind of, her brother lived there, his fiance was there, his sister was there. They weren't that happy with me. And so I go off, I take off and make a bunch of music, mixtapes, you know, for the party that's that night. And that night I I take some, I take some acid and um, it's all really good until my girlfriend tells me, I almost broke up with you today. And, you know, instead of saying, oh, gee, great. And I'm glad you didn't do that. um, I'm happy we're together. it, It tweaked this thing in me where all of a sudden I became really like really insecure, right? It was almost like this connection between my mother was being threatened. Right? She, in that moment, she was my mother. And so this psychic umbilicus was being threatened. And I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So the, the psychedelics really amplified and accelerated everything. And I remember um, just wanting everybody from the party to leave. Yeah. And within 10 minutes, they were gone. Yeah. It was like, oh my God, I moved these people out of this party. Mm-hmm. So now I'm thinking I'm alone with her. I can talk to her. We can have a rational conversation. We can stay together. Well, it didn't work out that way. And I wound up eventually going to sleep or at least going to bed at around 3.30, 4 in the morning. And I was having like dark night of soul. And I was completely devoid of any light inside of myself. 
And I began to see my life get played out almost like, you know, like a Bordeaux, you know, like a past life or like a past life, but a near death experience. And I was watching my life and what a sham my life was and how false it was and how I wasn't even like touching into any of my potential. And I couldn't sleep, you know, I just could not get to sleep. And I was trying to wake her up. So she would hug me because I was freaking out and um, it, didn't, it didn't work. You know, and later on, it was like the parable of, you know, of Christ and Gethsemane. And he's trying to wake the disciples and nobody will wake up because he's freaked out, scared, whatever. It was to me, it was kind of like that. And so I prayed and I said, you know, hey, look, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just, I, you know, I need to sleep. I need peace. And within 10 minutes, I was asleep. And I woke up the next day and I knew my life had changed. I hadn't, I had, I didn't know why or how, but, it, but I knew it changed. I, I kind of knew the why, but I didn't know how it was going to change. Broke up with my girlfriend and I had been working at this uh, apartment complex. So this is around 1979, 1980. So it's the end of the 70s, pre-AIDS. And this apartment complex was for singles. And I was the, uh, the assistant <laughs> recreation director. You could imagine what that was like. Oh, my God. Okay. Quaaludes were still being made. <laughs> it's like the love boat on land. Yeah. It was really <laughs> weird, too, because the woman who was, like, in charge of recreation, she was a born-again Christian. <laughs> so she's trying to do these semi-wholesome activities. And all anybody there wants to do is take drugs and screw <laughs> it's the seventies. <laughs> yeah, it was me. It was it was really just a circus. <laughs> so I met this guy there, though this older guy who did not really, but like he didn't get the memo right. Like it was not his place, but he got it because it was close to where he worked, which was the airport. And he had been a pilot for United, but it had, he'd had a nervous breakdown. And I found out all about this much later. Hold on one second. Let me just do this one thing. Hold on. Okay. Um, okay. So um, I befriended this guy because he was really interesting to me. And he, he was giving me these books. He was giving me like Edgar Casey stuff. And I found out he was, I thought he was really fascinating. He was older. I'm like, um, so I was, you know, I was tripping out like with the stuff he would give me. So one day before I got fired from this job, um, he gave me this book called my peace. And it was by the Lord himself. I'm like, Whoa, you know, thank you. I am clearly not ready for this book. So I put it on my bookshelf. And after I had come back from this weekend, because I was still living at home with my parents and going to school, I had wrecked my car. I'd had a, um, a, a massive kind of, you know, LSD meltdown, you know, thing. And, and kind of this dark night of the soul and I, and I don't know what to expect. And my parents were like, so cool. It was like, wow. I didn't tell them about the breakdown. I told them about my car. Um, and it was very, I thought, wow, this, this, you know, this is, this is an interesting moment. 
because I'm, I'm walking into at that time, what I would call a field of grace. Yes. And so then I just said to myself, I think I'm ready for that book. Oh, wow. So I put, you know, a couple of days later, I pull this book off my shelf and I start reading it. And it's almost as if the words are coming right off my soul. And as I read this book, my life begins to change in ways I can't even begin to describe. And I could only read maybe four or five pages at a time because the material was so kind of dense and yet like just pulsating with light. It was like nutrient-rich soul food. So as I began to read this book, my life just began to completely change. Like my habits began to change. My diet began to change. Um, my thoughts began to change. I started to have, it was almost as if, like you would understand this from a, a astrological perspective, like my, my upper mind opened. It was really profound. And I was, be, I was beginning to be able to make um, associations Right, I was beginning to um, make these kinds of connections in ways that I'd never made before. It was very interesting. It was like all of a sudden, this my you know my my third eye, my crown just opened up. Yeah. And then I started to have um, out of body experiences, and this would be a good kind of a good segue into like a dream story. You want to hear it? Yes. And, um, and on your way into that story, I usually just like to get an idea of how you dream. So the detail, like, do you, a general idea, like black and white, color, audible, all that, your dream landscape in general. So it, it you know, over the years it's changed, but mostly color and, um, and some audible, um, and for a very long period of time, uh, I had incredibly dark dreams. Is in like terrors? Well, I I know I would have some of those later. <laughs> Murder, death, kill dreams. I, I would have very very dark psychological dreams. Okay, like a lot like a lot of death, violence. Mm-hmm. Like you know, very like I would I would be working things out in a very you know, intense sort of way in my dream life. Yeah. Um, and, and I would also have, you know, quote unquote, you know, at times light dreams, but, um, but mostly you know, because I have Scorpio rising in my 12th house. Yeah. Also <laughs> dominated by Scorpio. Yeah, of course. So my dream life tends to be very intense. Yeah. Um, but that time I was having, okay. So this goes into the, so I was studying Hemingway in college and I had my, my teacher was a guy by the name of Robin Gadjuzak and Robin's son is the producer for stranger things. And Robin's uncle or Robin's brother um, is, it was a Nobel prize winner who discovered Kuru disease. Uh, he discovered basically mad cow, right? Oh, wow. This was it. This was in Borneo. And he wanted, he was a co-winner of the Nobel prize, oh. but 
Okay. It getting off the track a little bit, but so Robin's brother um, wound up taking some of these boys back from young boys back from Borneo. He adopted like I think twelve or thirteen of them, and he wound up, you know, having like he wound up abusing them, sexually abusing them, which is a strange kind of offshoot of the you know these kids and Stranger Things. It's a whole different trip. But you know, Robin was my Hemingway teacher. And he was an amazing teacher. We did Hemingway five days a week, so I was immersed in Hemingway. And uh, one night, I was having this very intense dream. And in the dream, I saw these two lions. And then um, I felt the presence of Ernest Hemingway in my room. And I got clubbed on the head, which I thought was Ernest Hemingway. And I, and the, and it was so visceral that I actually pulled the covers over my head because I didn't want to be hit. Wow. And shortly after that, I started to have out of body experiences. Like I would, you know, pop out of my third eye. While awake? When I slept. And it was really, it was really a trip, you know, like it was interesting, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's also very unnerving to have these things. And then I, and then I, you know, got further into Hemingway, and then I, I, I found out that when he was in um, Spain, he was part of the Red Cross in Spain. He wound up having um, an out-of-body experience because he got wounded trying to bring these guys off the off the battlefield because he was Red Cross. Yes. So he was wounded. So he had an out-of-body experience, which um, was one of the reasons why he was an insomniac because he it, it terrified him so much that he thought if he went to sleep again, he would leave his body. I so, just watched a Hemingway biography, so this is timely for me. So... I'm convinced that I was initiated into out-of-body experiences and astral travel by Ernest Hemingway. That's amazing. So when you're, when you're this, okay, so can you lay this foundation for us of your difference between dreaming where it's just your personal filing system, the stuff of the day, um, and then this, uh, lucidity and out of body are there are these distinct layers that you experienced is it seamless the third eye um thing like popping out is this still something that happens and how visceral was that that's you know, it, has, it hasn't happened in a in a while um because i, I sleep a lot less um okay. you know, i think i sleep maybe six hours a night oh. uh, so it's it's um doesn't happen that much. It sometimes it will happen when I'm really, really, really tired, like really exhausted. I think I probably have too much electronic smog in my place now for it to happen. Yeah, it seems like everyone does these yeah, days. Yeah, it's messed with my dream life in a lot of ways and sleep in general. But when it would happen, it was very it was very distinct from dreaming. It was very very distinct. It would be something of another order or another level. And it would generally be accompanied by um, sleep paralysis. That would mm-hmm. be one of the oncoming sorts of states. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, I would just feel myself just rip through my third eye. And so were you, when you're in the sleep paralysis state, was there, was there a point? So was that a scary part for you in the beginning or? Oh, it was terrifying because I was actually able to see into the, you know, lower astral. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there, there are things in the lower astral that, you know, will really get your attention. Yeah, it's irpy. So then once you were able to write out, you knew that you knew that you were going to actually go OBE. Yeah, yeah. You, it, you know, I'd have to trust it. And mm-hmm. it was not always easy to trust it because I, I guess in life, I'm kind of a control freak, you know, in my own way. Um, but, you know, getting to that point where you could actually let go, I, you know, and this would, and this happened pretty much, into my late thirties and into some degree in my early forties. Um, and I got better at sort of trusting it. And there are other times where it's just like, no, I don't want to do this. I just want to sleep. So um, you, but you did have, you were able to exert that kind of will where you could choose not to go. Over. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think there was one time it was for me, the most profound and this is when I was living in um, Oakland and I had like, like a lot of crazy dreams and, and really otherworldly stuff happened to me between um, 32 and, and around 38 mm-hmm. um, I, it, between, between 32 and 36, 37. Um, I had Pluto transiting my ascendant in Scorpio. Oh, okay. I was, was wondering a, what must have been going on. Oh, it was intense. It was like, it, 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 it was like a combination of like Disneyland and hell. Yeah. Well, Pluto's no joke. Yeah. Cause some of it was really interesting, you know, very dark though. I went through a lot of dark material and I, and I managed an apartment building in Oakland at the edge of the ghetto and 80% of my tenants were black. Yeah. I lived so, in Oakland for a while. Yeah, so it was, you know, it was both sort of <clears throat> physically, you know, no pun intended, but it was, you know, I was living with people from a, you know, different culture and, you know, it was just, it was very different and it was cool in a lot of ways, but metaphysically, certainly it was very dark. Yeah. And, um, well, it seems so, like it served as a catalyst yeah. to activate this different layer. <laughs> oh, totally. You know, it was, I was dealing with, like, you know, really primal energies mm-hmm. in that place. You know, you wake up, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, you'd, you know, you'd hear people, you know, fucking away and, you know, uh, loud moaning and, you know, mm-hmm. very, you know, very, very visceral kind of reality. But you'd also hear other stuff that wasn't great. Like, I remember one morning waking up and I could hear very clearly the woman across from me abusing her kid. Oh, man. You know, it was, it was a heavy environment in a lot yeah. of ways. And I learned a lot. But it was also this kind of time where I was having this very powerful psychic exploration. I was really into, like, dark ambient music. Yeah. I was but one of my... This goes with Pluto so well. Oh, yeah. I was really into this guy named Jorge Reyes from Mexico who did this kind of ethno-shamanic music. I actually went to Mexico and hung out with him. And, oh, nice. Yeah. So it was like a big, you know, psychonavigation, techno shamanism. That was, that was my, that was my thing back then. And, um, 
So I, I had this uh, one night there, and it was all kind of sort of bunched together. And this is really, it was, so I, I, I had this out-of-body experience. I was sleeping on my couch, and I remember leaving my, my body and going underneath my, my couch. Yes. And I thought, this is no place to hang out. It's really dusty down here. So at that point, I went back through my body and I went out through my window, my bay window. And I actually remember moving through glass. It was like moving through water. It was really interesting. Nice. And, um, and I remember just ascending into the sky. And I was, I was actually really out there, like further than I'd ever been. Were you in control of this? Uh, yes, because I was able to get back into my body, but it was, it was very, I mean, I, 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 I shot off like a skyrocket. What did you see out there? Oh, I, I, well, certainly I could see the landscape below. Mm -hmm. I could see the apartment that I was living in. Uh, I could, the stars were incredibly clear and alive. It was like, I was a part of them. Oh, so there was a connection too. Oh, yeah, totally. And the moon, I think, was full. You know, it was like this massive silver orb, and and I'm like, where am I going with this? You know, and it's like, how far am I going to get out here? And I, I kind of freaked out a little bit. Is that what and brought I, you back in? Yeah, and I said, I, I I've got to get back because I'm, I'm, you know, accelerating at a pretty substantial rate and so I'm you know and I've never you know I've never gone this far out before so I came back into to my body and it was right around it may have been that night or it was right around the same time where I had this really interesting dream where um, I was being shown this alien language oh and it was and it was like a scroll of this alien language what, like and, glyphs? What did it look like? It was almost like alien Morse code, like kind of glyphy. Yeah. Okay. And, and I could read every single line. Like I, like I knew every single line. And there was this other kind of piece of the dream where um, I was a part of this round table. And in the round table, I was actually kind of young. I mean, I was in my life at that time, right around 35, but in the dream, I couldn't have been more than, you know, 10 years old or 11 years old. It was very strange. And I was around this round table and we, this group of people, it was like, you know, we were like some version of, you know, the Justice League on an astral level. And there was, it was like the last time we were meeting together. And this guy who was sort of the, the focal point or the leader or the, he had like king like energy in some ways. And he said, this is the last time we'll be meeting together. You know, look around one another um, and sort of take this all in. And I thought, well, this is all very interesting. But what came to me uh, through this whole thing with the alien code was that at around the age of nine, during my sleep, I was part of a group of souls that would get together and we would do these actions all over the planet. 
And um, at that time, what they, what they said in the dream was that even though I was nine, I was roughly around 42 years old in sort of the, my kind of evolutionary state. It was odd because when I was young, I felt really way older than my years, like way older. Like when I was nine, like when I was 10 years old, I was reading Ball Four by Jim Bouton. You know? Yeah, I was, and I was similar. So, I, so I was, you know, so I, I could relate to this. And what came to me was that, you know, because I was nine years old or 10 years old, I would get a lot of sleep, right? So during these states, I would be very active. It, would, it was almost like taking advantage of this 10-hour time zone where I could do other things, or 10-hour time frame. So the alien code were these actions that we did. Oh, wow. Yeah. So one of them was um, when I was nine, we actually we directed our energy to a uh, an ocean liner or a tanker that was crossing the Atlantic, and there was a a a, a breach in the hull of the boat, and so we actually came together energetically to you know help the molecules kind of cohere. Oh, this is remarkable. So the boat could make this journey. And then the next line of code was um, something similar, but it was it was like there the, there was a rupture in the, I, I, I guess you would call it the energy field of the planet or the kind of the embryo of the planet. And there was this kind of alien energy that was interpenetrating the planet. And so we went there to take care of that and deal with that. And I was just, and I was just, you know, loving reading these codes. And all of a sudden this woman who I was dating at the time, for some reason decided to call me up at like, you know, one in the morning. And so the dream ended. Oh, wow. But it was really, really quite powerful. And it made a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, it's like, wow, that, that was cool. So that was that was a, that was a big dream for me. So would you call that a dream or a lucid dream or astral activity? Uh, yeah, I I don't know it. It was it it was not it was not your typical dream. Right. It sounds it was, like you were very lucid at least. Yeah, I was pre- I was pretty lucid. Like I was actually able to, you know, read the code and and it was um it was interesting. I'll tell you another dream if you're if you're into it, if you're open to yes. it. Oh yes, please. Okay. That's what we love. So this was kind of this kind of you know liminal period of my life. Like I got married when I was 29, and uh, I got divorced. How's that in return of you? Yeah, but it didn't work <laughs> out. It did not work out um, for a number of reasons, and so I, my uh, we we broke up pretty early. Yeah. And so I wound up. Uh, kind of bouncing around the Pacific Northwest for roughly a summer. I was trying to figure out where I was going to live and nothing was really working out too well, but I was starting to have these really strange experiences with my name, which uh, legal, you know, my, 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 my government name is Robert Morris and my, and my, my uh, sort of fictitious or nom de plume is Robert Phoenix you refer to that as your slave artist. name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I call it the government name, right? 
yeah, so I, I, uh, I, used, I was seeing my name everywhere, the Robert Morris name everywhere. It was weird, you know? And I started to have these weird kinds of synchronicities with Philadelphia. I was reading this book called The Miracle of Philadelphia, all about the Constitution. And one of the signers of the Constitution was Robert Morris. And um, I remember looking for a place to live in Seattle that summer. And, and I knocked on this door and I was asking about, you know, room in the house. And, and somebody, somebody had taken it. And I was talking to the woman in the house. I said, oh, I really like this area. What's it? It's right across from this baseball field. What's the name of the baseball field? It's just, oh, that's Bobby Morris Playfield. Like, oh. <laughs> and then I went to I went to Portland to see if I could find a place, and I answered an ad in the uh, the Oregonian or whatever the, the, the whatever the news. That's yeah, the Oregonian. So so I, I went for an interview at this house, and it was on morris avenue in portland oh wow and then i and then i tried to get a like a summer gig ushering at cirque du soleil in san francisco and the guy who was in charge of ushering his he was canadian and his name was robert Morais, right the canadian version oh the synchronicities yeah so what is going on here with this name thing you know it's weird so i wound up going to Olympia, Washington for Labor Day because my ex-wife, she wasn't my ex-wife yet. She was close to being the ex-wife. She was, um, she was flying into Olympia from Hawaii to, to bake for this wedding. So I'm like, you know, I just got a hair up my butt and I'm going to drive from the Bay Area to Olympia, Washington on a Friday night. So I got in my car. I had two cats at the time, a kitten and a dog and, a, and the kitten's mom. So I drove from uh, Vallejo to Olympia and I'm driving through the night. And, you know, I still love doing stuff like that, just get in the car and drive. And I, uh, I got, I, I, so the next morning, I, I think I stopped in Lake Oswego, slept. I started calling my friend who lived in Olympia and he wasn't answering, but he always told me, Hey, if I'm not here, here's the key. Just let yourself in. So I keep phoning him. He's not there. I let myself in. I'm staying there for about three or four days. Labor Day comes. My wife, my ex-wife shows up. We have a great time. And I find out that the guy who's living there is in a coma. And I'm like, wow. So, okay, what do you want me to do? Well, can you stay here, watch his cat? You, you know, you can hang out here for a while. I'm like, Okay, fine. I was supposed to go back to California. It didn't work out. Now, all of a sudden, I find myself in Olympia, Washington at this guy's place, like uh, just outside of Olympia, Scott Lake. And I start to have the most mind-blowing dreams in this place. And I have this one dream where um, I find my dead body. Oh, my. And I pick up my dead body and I take it to the Vatican <laughs> and I hand it to these nuns. And I said, here, can, can you give this to the Pope? Oh, wow. And they're like, okay. And then, and then I, and then I found my dead body again. It's like I found it twice. And then the second time I just put it in the dumpster. <laughs> so I did two different things with my dead body. Was and all I the got loot up. there still from the first one? What's that? Was all the loot still there from the first one? 
Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't. Well, this is interesting that you bring this up because the next day I got up and I was like feeling very strange, but I hadn't paid my credit card in about two months. So I get on the phone and I call my credit card company and I give them all my information and they, and they said, um, they said, Oh, Robert Morris. I said, yes. And this is your last address. And I said, yes. I said, well, our records show that, um, you're deceased and your, your, your account has been terminated. Oh, wow. Wow. And I nearly dropped the phone. <laughs> so this is the, this is the morning after I have this I'm dead dream. Oh, that's astounding. And so part of me was like freaked out. And the other part of me was like really happy. Yeah. Yeah. Of that course. Was the second death was your <laughs> strong. Yeah. So, so they said, well, if you want to clear this up, you're going to have to send us a letter. And I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that right away. So the dreaming stuff in this place near, near, near Olympia, just outside of Olympia, got really interesting. And, it, and not long after that, I had this dream where I stepped through like this wall of plasma. And on the other side of this wall of plasma, I knew everything about another life that I was living. It was like I knew all the details intimately. Wow. It was weird. And was this lucid? Or, oh, you yeah. Know, very lucid. Okay, very lucid. And it, and it was just for, you know, a few moments. And then I walked back through that wall of plasma and came back into you know, my sleep dream. What did the wall of plasma look like, if I may? Oh, it, was like, it was like a Slovene river. Did it have a color? It was clear. Wow. Opaque, but a little cloudy. It was sort of like, like a shower door that's a little um, yes. frosted. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. That's what it was like. So I was very interested in this experience. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And I went to go see this uh, psychic in Seattle because I wanted some kind of clarity on it. And this is before you were actually working as a psychic? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So she, she said, well, you have um, two alternate lives currently. She said, one of them is a small girl living in the Midwest, and she, is, she comes from a very poor family. The other is an older man living in Philadelphia, and he's near the end of his life. So this is the same summer all this Philadelphia stuff is going on. Oh, my and by the way, I have always, 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 always been totally into time travel. Like that's been my thing, you know, throughout my life. Time travel. Yeah. Love yeah. It. Sorry if you hear I'm a howling dog. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I actually so, typed in the chat before that you were time traveling in your dreams to be to when you're 42. So, so you're <laughs> kind of onto something, right? I mean, so I, I was, I, I was. I'm very into time travel. So I, I get this thing with this woman. I was very into the Philadelphia experiment, this whole, you know, 
And um, when in my not, in my 30s, so I filed all, all this away, right? Just filed it away, really interesting. In my 30s, I started to get into Peter Moon's books. You know, have you guys read those? Can you give me a title? I, I know. haven't, but it's been related to a Montauk and so Synchronicity, uh, the Montauk experience. Oh, yes. No, I haven't read them. I, I didn't He's know the one you. who came up with the idea of the loop between 83 and 63 and yeah. 43. Oh, well, right? the, 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 that was like Preston Nichols and those guys. Yeah, well, Moon worked with them for a while. Yes. I think Peter Moon still works with Preston Nichols. He's a Facebook friend. He corrected me on something today on Facebook. Preston or I don't know him, but he corrected me on something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> He's okay. He's a Facebook friend. But I really got into his anyway. Montauk books. And so we fast forward, it's 19 uh summer 96. And this is I started to do a lot of tarot reading. Um, this is this is after I did the phone psychic stuff and everything. And so I'm traveling around the country doing tarot reading. I got my van, I got my dog. I'm really restless, so I'm going to go, you know, read tarot cards across America, which I did, I and I wound up uh, uh, in uh, this uh, campground in uh, Santa Fe, and I think it's what is it? It's like I think it's August 13th. It's one. It's it's the key day for. I think it's the 12th. And so I'm reading, rereading Adventures in Synchronicity, and then I realize the day that I'm reading about is that day. Right, it's actually happening oh. in August. <laughs> so excellent. So I'm thinking, wow, this is really interesting, right? I'm I'm reading about this on the day. So I, I I run out of money, and I just had enough to fill up my gas tank. I so I decided to get out of Santa Fe. And I wound up going to Taos. I drove to Taos, kind of a little bookstore gallery thing. And she sort of took a liking to me. And I think I showed up in. Was it Sybil Dunbar? What's that? Was it Sybil Dunbar? No, no, it was woman. She was really interested. She'd been a a high-ranking executive for Disney, and she wound up getting abducted and kidnapped in Disneyland by somebody. Wow! And was held hostage. It was kind of a big deal. That is a yeah. Big deal. And she managed to talk her way out of this thing, and then she left Disney, and she eventually wound up in Taos, and she had this gallery, but it wasn't working. They had a drought in Taos, and a bad winter was really, you know, just throttling her. But she, she and I connected. We, we had a nice friendship. And she said that I could read tarot cards in her gallery. But on this Monday night, she hired this woman to come in and read the Akashic Records. So she said, you're my guest. You can come in and hang out. And I think I was the last person to get my question answer so I, I told her about this thing with the philadelphia experiment and this day in august and reading about it and it being the day and she said well i'll tell you why this is meaningful to you because you were there you were part of the philadelphia experiment 
and you have an alternate life as a, you're an old, older man you're about ready to pass oh, on in Philadelphia. So and again. Oh, by, and oh, by the way, you have another life, and it's a young girl <laughs> living in the Midwest. This oh, is man. six years apart from Dude. when I had that first experience psychic in Seattle. That's, that's just mind-blowing. You could be I, another Al Bielik. I freaked out. Okay, I totally freaked out when I heard this. So this is around 1996? 96, yes. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of mind-blowing. And, and it actually made sense that, you know, I was actually there, mm-hmm. you know, part, of, part of the experiment. She had a different take on it, though. She didn't think people time-traveled. She thought that it was more of a... Like parallel more of a kind of a mass hypnosis. Hmm. That's what her take was. And so this ties into that, that wall we're talking about in the dream. Were you able to, so in the dream you were thinking it was past lives, but it, it could have been contemporary simultaneous. Yeah, no, the dream is the parallel life. Like I, when I went through that, the current of plasma, uh, it wasn't past. I knew I was living. Okay, it was current. All right. Yes, I was living out something else in, in some kind of altern- alternate life. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of a mind blower for sure. And, um, and those other lives yeah, were in this same dimension, same realm? Like you could go yes. visit those people? Yeah. Theoretically, yes, yeah, cool. if, I, if I knew who they were. I think that the... Uh, I think the, the guy in Philadelphia, he's gone. What's really interesting is like for a long time, I had a real issue with money. And I always had like this pot, you know, you know, it's kind of cliche to say, but like this poverty consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, you know, and I wonder if it had to do with this alternate life that I was living with this young, young girl who was growing up in, probably less than ideal circumstances. I wonder if that was like kind of leeching into, you know, my reality in some ways. You would think that it would. There's a symbiotic, there has to be some sort of symbiosis going on. I think so, particularly because I was so interested in time travel as well. Mm-hmm. But you guys must so share would it, some if kind you... of DNA, right? I mean, in order for that to happen, you'd think there'd be some kind of DNA sharing at some point. I would. Could be. I mean, it could be. Or maybe what we perceive as reality is just, you know, a lot more strange than, you know, we can wrap our heads around. Well, that's, and that's what we're all about. What do you think would happen? Is it, so say you, you encounter the girl who's still alive. Is this some sort of, does it create some sort of, not a not a sci-fi paradox, but some sort of paradox where you would, if you're vibrating at the same rate because you're actually the same soul consciousness or whatever you want to call that. I would think it more of a completion than a antimatter matter thing. Right, and I'm trying to get away from that. Is like like that trying to find a word that brings that same kind of feeling as a paradox where two. Two things vibrating at the same rate meet each other. It would be an interesting um, journey, you know, 
and it could make for you know if if it was done right, it could be for an interesting movie plot. What do you think? You already said you have the deja vu. So what do you think deja vus are? Your thoughts? Well, my my experience was um, that I you know that I had been to those events in the future already. And, and so there's so it's not tied into any anything else like a dream or you've already been there but you're here yeah because time is really fluid mm -hmm. right so based on probabilities mm -hmm. and and i think the probabilities when you're younger are more finite in some ways and um meaning they're kind of you know in terms of like sort of you know control sort of factors i think they're more finite and i think as you get older i think the, those kind of go away i could be wrong but there's there's way more variables um that's just my sense but it was that that's you know because i would ask myself you know why does this happen and it happened frequently and strongly mm -hmm. and the only thing i could come up with is that i've already been here because i would know what was going to happen right that's part of that experience. Yeah. If you're tuned into it, I find. So so this elder gentleman that is you also, who is probably past now, where, what happens with the part of you that is an, was animating him, you know, that whatever your essence is. So what, what, what I was told by sort of the, the first psychic in Seattle was that, he was sort of the he uh, he was sort of the lead in some ways, and then then when he would pass, it, it would move on to me. Like you know, I would be sort of the the focal point now for the the two other lives until I would leave. Um, but I don't know what you know what's what would have happened. Me, you know, who knows? So in that in that kind of taking that further do you think it's possible that there's been another fragment then is this a chain kind of thing it could be i mean i think yeah. anything is possible yeah of course but since these experiences are so um so solid and then you have these two separate psychics honing in on the same thing in conjunction with that dream i you know i felt you know i had to ask yeah i mean i yeah. It was really, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I remember clearly during the 80s and into the 90s that there was almost like this really sort of feckin' psychic field mm -hmm. that was everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, like I ran across really profound psychics, I ran across really profound channels. And um, I don't know if that kind of reality exists anymore. It certainly doesn't exist for me. No, um, things have changed. For you, sure. you, can you relate to that? Yes. And it's a subject I, we talk about a lot often. There's definitely been a change. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out what the change was or is. What it, I mean, what and how about even since the eclipse, too?
Right. Well, now we're dealing with all this other stuff right now, mm-hmm. contemporary, because as you said, Robert, and I can't remember which one, but the before eclipse and after eclipse stuff, which is profound, profound. We turned a corner. Oh, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a different place now. Yeah. Yeah. I it's could save, save that for the after. That's for after. So, so yeah, I don't know how we are in time, Jerry. We are at one hour and 20. We're time for questions. We're coming up on it. Okay. So let me just get in a a couple of these last things for a Nox Mente show. So um, I want, so ultimately, so we start with the world you grew up in and we move into your dream symbols and dream landscape and into varied states of consciousness um, and I, I want to know what do you feel or think about the state of death in conjunction with the state of memory, the state of dreaming, the state of out of body? How does does that tie into any of this? Yes, I think so. Um, the state of death is it's interesting. You know, I, I, this weekend I uh, I went to a memorial this weekend. And uh, it was a, a contemporary friend, not a friend, but somebody in acquaintance that I, I coached um, sort of, bait, not with, but, you know, we managed teams in the same league for a couple of years. So I went, I went to his memorial on, on uh, Saturday, uh, which was, I found myself tearing up and crying. Um, and, I, and I heard all these great stories. And I said to myself, man, I should have hung out with this guy more. He sounded like a great, really good <laughs> guy. And then a, a Right around the same time, it was the same Saturday, actually. Uh, Kevin McMahon. Do you guys know Kevin McMahon at all? The name Kevin, is familiar. Jared. Kevin um, is is no, one, you know, he was one of these kind of synchromistic navigators, and Kevin was he used Google Earth, and he was brilliant at aligning from one point to another, and you know, like if you you know, draw this line from this obelisk in Vatican City and you draw it straight across to Las Vegas. And you know, he would do this stuff like passed. that. But it was so similar. This is who What's passed. That? Kevin passed away last Saturday. Okay. And so and um he he's got his magnum opus on on YouTube uh with JFK and nine eleven. But um that's but, how I know his name. I do know who he is. Yeah, so so I had Kevin on my show. He's a really, really sweet guy. And so both him and uh, Stan passed. And they're both they're both Scottish, McMahon and McDonald. But, you know, I thought, well, this is this is unusual, you know. And so I've actually been thinking a lot about death. And I've actually been thinking, of, you know, about death before then, too. Um, because I've got my my uh, my progressed ascendant is is Capricorn, and I've had Pluto on my progressed ascendant now for like you know the last three or four years. So I've been living with this intense kind of Plutonian energy. Oh yeah, and you know I don't I I you know I may have had a, a much closer encounter with death when I was eighteen months old and I had spinal meningitis, but it's it's not. It's not, you know, consciously with me. Um, but I would assume that 
these things that I've experienced along the way, just like other things that people have experienced along the way, um, I would I would assume that they become much more manifold in death since we're not dealing with you know the gravity of you know this dimension. Um, so I, I I would assume that you know based on one's consciousness. Uh, that there could be a number of different things that an individual could access in in a fairly unique way, and that the the sort of the glimpses and the glimmers and the you know the shards and the fragments of these you know alternate realities would become much more evident. But at the same time, you know, I, I think we've all been going through this kind of interesting relationship with our ideas of what the afterlife is. And, you know, there have been, I, I really, who, what was that guy? Um, Illuminati matrix. You, uh, what was his name? Um, Wilson, Tom Wilson. No. Uh, no, it'll come to me. Um, but, but uh, it, so one of the things that was really popping when this guy's website was, was cooking, um, was this whole idea that death is a trap, right? And that we wind up getting recycled and we wind up coming back here. Uh, you know, and this whole thing with going to the light and all that stuff is just a complete ploy by the, you know, the archonic entities that, you know, that rule over the Gnostic domain. So that if you really want to escape this thing, you know, you, you go as far away from the light as possible, right? So I think there's been some really interesting kind of developments around death. And in fact, I think there's like this, like spiritual movement now where people are committing suicide because they're consciously ending or breaking. Have you heard about this? Yes. Yes. Well, I just saw a movie about this where they get proof of the afterlife and people start killing themselves like 4 million people in a day kind of thing. So it's just, it's kind of this new phenomenon where they're like, screw it. You know, this life is hell. You know, the, the, the myths about going to hell after you commit suicide are nothing more than things to keep you from actually pulling the ripcord on this place. You know, I don't know where I stand on that, but um, clearly we're having a major shift in our relationship with what we perceive the afterlife to be. Well, what do you think? So I guess maybe winding this round, what is this that we have right now? Like if we're, we can be lucid in dreams and be this conscious. And, and then of course, memories are no different, but they're no less tangible than a dream and are no more. And, um, so what about this state right now? As soon as this is over, it's hard, you know, aside from this video, what do we have to show for it? This is transient as well. Oh, we don't even have the video. I'm not recording it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to get your... No, it's, you're, you're right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it's... it's um, and it all happens so... I mean, you know, now we're in the realm of cliche, but... It all happened so quickly. I, I was with my son tonight, um, and we drove past his elementary school. And I said, "Do you do you remember when you first came here? You know, what grade were you in?" 
he said it was third grade. And I said, well, what grade are you in now? He says, I'm in the eighth grade. I said, that's five years ago. So you realize how fast that went? <laughs> and I said, in five years, you know, you'll be 18. And trust me, it'll go by in the blink of an eye. And everything is, it is incredibly transient. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm 57, but it sure feels like that time is just ripping by now. It does feel like it's speeding up to me as well. I'm, I'm not, I'm not in my fifties. So there does seem to be some sort of shift, but I've wondered maybe is there some astrology behind that even, I don't know, or some, you know, the harmonic convergence, something that we can latch onto even. It felt to me like after the harmonic convergence, we were living in a post-historical time. And that's, I when that, I, yeah. that's when I really felt like things were speeding up. You know, and you, and you, you can even hear it in It's the End of the World as We Know It by, you know, by R.E.M. Yes, yes. That song just completely captures that zeitgeist. Of yeah, it's a, it really does encapsulate that perfectly. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Yeah. So post-2012, where we, you know, because something happened in 2012, even though, you know, the world, um, you know, didn't theoretically end, something changed in 2012. And we were living in yet kind of another sort of post-historical era. You know, that's, you know, right around 2012 is when um, a lot of the false flaggy stuff starts to happen. Yes, absolutely. 2012 was a gateway and it definitely happened. People want things to be like sci-fi or boom, boom in your face. And I felt on an energetic level, things changed. Yeah, they, they, they definitely changed. Now we're on the backside of this eclipse and, you know, we're, we're, we're living in bizarro land now. <laughs> it is upside down world. It's all I can, it seems really so inverse in a way. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is, um, you know, people say that, well, this is part of the program where everything is inverse, right? That, you know, pretty is ugly, good is bad, um, you know, all these kinds of inversions. And that's part of this, this, this program. Uh, but, the, I, you know, I read something from this so-called insider. And basically what the insider was saying was that you have it completely wrong. It's not about things being inversed but it's about reality being shaped to the way that we want to shape it on, on a consensus level. And you have, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. The inversion piece is only kind of a, you know, sort of a, um, a filter. elementary modification. Yes. That it's not just, you know, upside down, but inside out, you know, sideways, over, under, sideways, down. You know, this is, this is the, you know, the universe or the model that we're 
moving towards. And there's no, and the challenge with that is that, you know, people that are, are born, I would say, you know, probably pre 1980 don't have the same kind of historical reference points. So, you know, we've had, you know, I don't know how old you, you two are, but, you know, we kind of grew up in this, this kind of cyclical linear sort of time thing, you know, where there was like the evolution of rock and roll. You could see it, right? Instruments oh, yeah. got better, amps got better, recording equipment got better. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a moment, I'm a Gen Xer, so I've definitely seen a progression happen. And then this sort of entropy or whatever we're in now. So the reference points are just, they're just disappearing completely. I mean, from, I mean, from a landscape perspective, right? They're removing statues. I mean, that's a really mundane reference point, but they're removing statues. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I think the gap between the time of removal and the time of putting it up is going to get shorter and shorter because it seems like the, the system is trying to make us forget as much as our history as, as possible or our past so it can shape the future more to its liking. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and look at something as mundane as um, Leave it to Beaver. Like, you won't, you know. That does not exist. <laughs> yeah, it'll be rare to see Leave it to Beaver. That's it's alien now. Well, that really. whole 50s atomic family model has been destroyed that's why it's been atomized <laughs> definitely definitely we got a question though yes so we're going to wrap up the nox mente section of this yeah. with questions and then we'll move into the after show where we're not live all right so kilendal has a question thank you for joining us tonight Kalendal. robert have you ever woken up from a dream and felt like literally have you felt like literally fell into his bed, your bed. So have you ever woken up and fell into your bed from a dream? Like that feeling? Yes, I've had that feeling. And if so, were you flying right before you woke up? I think I was actually, yes. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. He'll yeah. be happy with that. No more questions. Do you That's think it? That's the only question? No, John Wolf has no questions. I'm That's surprised. Crazy. Someone asked if we're going to get raptured into spacecrafts of the Anunnaki. No, that's I not, hope not. not really a question. When the Bureau flies by, you know. I have no interest in getting into a spacecraft. I hope you do. I, I said if we did, you get eaten if you do. <laughs> All, <day. laughs> All right. I used to, I used to want, I used to want to spacecraft. But I don't, right. I, don't, I don't want to, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Me it's, it's funny how it shifts. It looks like there's a question in there now. Uh John asked one earlier when. John, can you just repeat it for he us? He says the change is CERN. That's the only thing of his. Oh, wait. CERN. Yeah, we got we to gotta factor CERN in for sure. A lot of John's think. Yeah, there's no questions I How see, John. I'm sorry. Do you channel Ernest like Hemingway? Do I channel Hemingway? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've had people like... This one guy, he sent he he emailed me a long time ago, and he um, told me that he had a dream about me and Ernest Hemingway, and this was just somebody who was a a reader of my website, 
and it had something to do with an apartment and me. It was very unusual. I, so people have had these connections with, with me and Hemingway. Um, I don't know if I channel Hemingway, but there's some odd thing there. And, and, and most of his um, books, original manuscripts, are here at the University of Texas. So, so are Crowley. There's a lot of Crowley's works at the University of Texas. That's a nice synchronicity. They also have the Gutenberg Bible there. Oh, there was that changed everything. All right. One, okay, here's John. I, <clears throat> excuse me. Here's John's question. Question of the day is: How big is the self? How big is the self? That's what. Uh, well, it depends on how many drinks I've had. <laughs> if I've had a few drinks, the self gets very big. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. I can see why he asked that, though. It's a great psychological question, especially with the, why, oh, my dogs are going crazy upstairs, with the bilocation. Yeah, true, right, because we're talking about the soul-splitting aspect. I, I think the self is an illusion, to be honest with you. you know, As do I. A virtual I, container. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it's just, an, I mean, the whole thing of identification, and we're here to identify and we're here to like, you know, move through the ego because it brings us experiences. But ulti ultimately, you know, it's, it's just a construct, really. You know? All right. Uh, last question here from John. <clears throat> Do you think dreams are real experiences? I think they can be. I think that there are higher and lower orders and levels of dreaming. And I think um, some dreams are very real and some dreams are just you know you're just you're just flushing out the garbage sometimes yeah the filing system in the after show i do want to ask you about the lower astral i was waiting to do that later out of the show okay yeah i wanted to all right all right well that's it for tonight's show thank oh wait we got one more we have a follow-up now from john damn you john <laughs> One more and done. What is beyond the self? What is beyond the self? Uh, infinite self? I mean, would you consider I mean, that I, I, collective I, you know, consciousness? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, ideally, you know, when I think of the self on that level, I, I think of like Leaves of Grass by Whitman, right? Where, you know, he travels into this leaf of grass and he becomes everything. You know, he's, you know, partaking of the earth and the sky and all. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of literature in the English language. And the thing about it that's really fascinating, and of course, he, you know, would come through a Gemini because he's a Gemini, is that, you know, it comes out of this whole period uh, of, you know, where he has the, so the, songs, of, the songs of myself, right? And in the songs of myself is leaves of grass. So, he, so Whitman is very clear of some level of identification with this personal narrative that is actually writing these poems. But through that, he expands into this kind of mystical domain where he's everything. But through that, there's not a diminution of self there's like this kind of 
very expansive and macro realization of what self is. So what's beyond self is I think that kind of experience where you can be this, but you could also, you know, be an atom inside of a piece of plaster inside of the wall of this apartment or, you know, and, and done in such a way where the imagination is sort of the carrier wave of all of that. Um, William Blake talks about this as well. And so I think what's beyond self is this kind of representation of what it's like in some ways to be God. Because if you take this idea of God as this entity, not a demiurge, but this massive super intelligence that actually has like this core of love and this desire to experience novelty, that it could experience everything, but at the same time also experiences itself. And I think ultimately that's kind of the, that's the trip, right? That is the trip where you can't have all of that and at the same time still retain this kind of, you know, Martin Buber talks about like the thou thou relationship between living beings and even to some extent non-living beings. And then he talks about the I thou relationship, which is almost like I it versus I I. And and so when you're in thou thou, you know, you can you can have that kind of that shared experience, but also also come back. I don't know if we can live like that every single day. You know, and maybe at some point in the future, after all all this electronic stuff is wiped out and, you know, we get to kind of revert back to analog life forms. We might have a better chance at it, but I think, you know, bringing it back, what's beyond self is the capacity to experience a multitude of things simultaneously. And at the same time have kind of a self-referential point. That's my, that's my, that's my take on it. That's, John said that was a very excellent answer. Thank you, Robert. So thank you, Robert. All right. Thank you, Robert, for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And um, and I'm glad we could get it together. Um, And um, Jerry, it's been great to connect with you. you Likewise. Likewise. And Nish, I hope to see your face someday, but it's been a pleasure meeting you and connecting you. Yes. I hope to see your face too. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, everyone in chat. Thank you for watching and listening, and sorry for the long delay tonight. And we'll see you next week when we welcome CW Chanter. I'm sure you're all excited about that, as we are. <laughs> we just triggered greatest potential on CW Chanter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Have a good one. Talk to you later. Bye.